show where we talk about video game based movies. Uh, I guess you know we're, we're just this is just our, our holiday thing now. Just everybody, just yeah, sit down, relax, and enjoy us talking about these movies. I'm Steampunk Link. I'm Emmy Zero. Folks, I'm just gonna say this one was not fun. This <laughs> this was not a fun movie to watch. Oh my goodness. Nope, it was not. This one, uh, of course, being Double Dragon from 1994, and yeah, I think you and I had both seen this movie at some point in the past we knew it was bad but we thought it was kind of like a fun sort of bad it is not it just sucks it's just a terrible terrible slog of a movie and um we hope that listening to this will be enough for you so you don't have to feel like you need to go out and watch this one yourself because um i wouldn't really recommend it honestly no neither would i i i think that um this one is not fun to watch in the same way that street fighter is like because street fighter is bad in a good way in in an entertaining and fun way and it also like just legitimately does things well at, at times yeah. This movie is a complete failure in every conceivable way and in the the way it fails is not fun or entertaining to watch. This is just a bad bad movie. I was really shocked to be honest with you. Like I really thought this would be more fun. If nothing else, like it's got cute Alyssa Milano and and I'm like, you know, this should be my jam, you know? She's got that pixie cut. It's adorable. Yeah, no, she she is very cute in this movie, but she is not uh well served by this movie. I think it's fair to say though. She's been in things. Like she can act. She's better than what we see from her in the, I mean like literally Everyone is probably better than what we see from them in this movie. This movie is horribly written. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Frankly, you know, Mark DeCasco's biting into the apple at the beginning of each episode of Iron Chef America is better acting than than most of what's done in this movie by him or by anybody else. Honestly, like Mark DeCascos has to do a lot of the heavy lifting of this movie, in particular, the martial arts heavy lifting, because he is the only competent martial artist in this film nobody else can fight and it is very obvious and it's really strange because he's sort of positioned as slightly the second banana in this movie yeah i mean he is literally the 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 second player right he's jimmy he's not billy no he yeah that's right and if you're playing like the nes version of double dragon he is the one who it turns out is the final boss (laughs) game he's jimmy right he's jimmy lee billy and jimmy i think billy is the the one player and jimmy is the two player i believe and right, i think but he's he's the one in the red outfit yeah at the end of the double dragon nes port he's revealed to be the leader of like the shadow gang or whatever that's kind of an adaptation of the thing they do at the end of the arcade game where the the sort of fun weird gimmick of the arcade game was that you were supposed to like play through that with two people and then at the end of the game the brothers like fight each other for marion's love so it becomes like a one-on-one fighting game for the final boss fight basically which i bring up because they do kind of try to do a version of that in this movie um it's badly done just like everything else in this movie but they tried that's that's one of their attempts at at referencing the game in some way. Yeah, but I mean, like the of the people who do any fighting in this movie, like Mark Dacascos's Jimmy Lee is the only one who 
really looks like he knows what he's doing and, and could take on anybody. Scott Wolf's Billy Lee, in half of his fight scenes, he's basically just using Home Alone-style traps to defeat the enemies rather than throwing a single punch or kick. So this is not the only movie like this, but it's the worst offender. Why would you adapt a a video game that is solely built around dudes punching people in the face and not cast people who could actually do martial arts in the movie. Like, it's... I, I don't get it. I don't get why... Like, was Scott Wolf seriously famous enough that it was worth having him and his good acting in this movie instead of somebody less famous who could actually do fight scenes like Mark Dacascos does. Like, I just, it's so, it's such a bad choice. I don't really get it. You know, I, I don't remember much about Alyssa Milano's fight scenes. I'm guessing she just was kind of blending in with the giant mob scenes, because that's really the only time we ever see her do any fighting at all is, you know, the the big scenes with a lot of people around. Um, Julia Nixon, who plays Satori Imada, throws a couple of kicks, but is, like, very clearly not a martial artist and, like, just learned how to do this today for this scene. Yeah, she does one of the worst stage punches I've ever seen at one point. It's, like, really slow, which is not her fault, to be clear. Like, the, the way the camera is angled, like, you can see there's, like, inches of space between her and the guy she's supposed to be hitting. They clearly just did not have a budget to teach any of these people any sort of stage fighting. There was the whole story about uh, Street Fighter, the last movie that we talked about for one of these, where they did not have enough time because Raul Julia came on the set and they're like, oh my god, this guy is deathly skinny right now because he had just recovered, well, he didn't actually recover from stomach cancers, we would find out later, but, you know, so like that kind of threw off the schedule because they had all these ideas of like, okay, we're going to have these people come in, these folks are going to teach everybody here how to fight, but I mean, like, Ming-Na still threw a semi-decent kick here and there. She was not a terribly convincing fighter, but at least they got that all to work well enough, but Julia Nixon here just just is, is not convincing in the slightest, but she's also just very strangely cast here because she's supposed to be their mentor figure or whatever. She's almost like their mother figure. Right, but she looks like she's about the same age as them. Yes, yeah. Okay, so... (laughs) We're not going to do like a a really long scene by scene breakdown of this movie because I refuse to go through this one like I did with Street Fighter. I could not watch this more than once. So this is going to be a much looser sort of conversation. We'll try and, you know, talk about scenes chronologically. But like I said, I don't have like a scene by scene breakdown in front of me. So we're probably going to jump all over the place to some extent. Where do you even start with this one? So this is obviously... Uh, an attempt, I guess you'd say, to make a movie based on the Technos arcade game beat 'em up series. This kind of continues the trend of video game movies from the early to mid 90s, adapting games that just didn't really have much story in the first place. And so, like, trying to kind of invent whole cloth, uh, a setting and characters and a story for a. Uh, Uh, movie to take place in. And what they've done here is essentially a really, really bad kid-friendly riff on uh, the Warriors and also, I guess, Escape from New York. Yeah. Um, Yeah. It's bad and it's I think pretty heavily depending on none of the children this movie was made for having seen those movies, because it has a bunch of stuff in it that's not really loving homages to those. It's just taking things 
from those movies and doing them worse. Yes. We have a post-apocalyptic L.A. in 2007. It's now New Angeles. Everything's so wild now because there was a big earthquake. Parts of the city are flooded. There's rampant and bizarrely exceptionally organized gang activity. They have essentially an app that shows how much share of, you know, the city each gang controls. Like, it's like a stock market. The police have retreated behind a truce with the gangs where they essentially just let the gangs have the city after dark every day. And there's a, there's a hard curfew. The gangs do whatever they want when it's their time and this is uh this is presented as a terrible thing that the la police are not tough enough on crime uh which uh we'll talk about that throughout this i'm sure yeah but yeah yeah oh you didn't think we were gonna get political on this show oh we're gonna get political yeah we're gonna get political and in the middle of all this we have billy and jimmy lee who are brothers they're i guess supposed to be teenagers neither of them looks anything like a teenager and they're tough uh but good you know they got hearts of gold they are uh martial artists being raised by their kind of surrogate mother figure satori who is also in possession of half of the mystical double dragon medallion which she promised their father she would keep the boys and the medallion safe. There's another half of the medallion that a very, very bad man. What is his name, by the way? I keep forgetting the 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 kind of fake Japanese name that this white dude has given himself. Yeah, um, he calls himself Koga Shuko, and this is uh, played by Pat- uh, Robert Patrick of Terminator 2 fame. The second half of the MacGuffin that uh, Satori has supposedly, as we, we will find out later on in the movie, been hidden somewhere where no one will ever find it um, is actually in the process of being found as the movie opens. I don't know if you knew this because um, I think you watched this entirely on YouTube and the opening of this movie is completely silent on YouTube. Yeah, they did the thing where they cut the uh, the sound out a couple of times in the movie, presumably to get around copyright, even though I've heard that doesn't actually work. But yeah, that, that whole first bit where uh, Kogashuko's forces are raiding this village to get the medallion was totally silent. Did you wonder what time period that was taking place in before? Absolutely. Okay. I thought that was like a flashback to ancient times. I thought that too. And then she pulls out a computer. A computer with the worst and weirdest keyboard I've ever (laughs) seen on it. Like, what was that supposed to be? Her Intellivision was in the shop, I guess. So she had to find an even weirder button configuration. It it was really weird because I I was kind of wondering like, okay, is this like supposed to be decades or even centuries ago what is the time period here i'm seeing a woman who's like in a mask but like i I think they meant it to be like a surprise like oh hey it's a woman but it's quite obviously not only is it quite obviously a woman it's quite obviously a white woman despite the fact that she's wearing a mask you can see the eye holes and you can tell like okay this is not someone who's from around here probably i'm gonna guess and that turns out to be completely right as she um tells uh koga shuko that that she's found it and what it is uh turns out to be the medallion now as we open here robert patrick has been doing a sort of narration and as the scene transitions to his lair we find out that this 
narration has actually been diegetic this whole time. He's just been saying all of this to his hench people while we've been watching that scene. Which which is par for the course because Robert Patrick's character, who is in so much of this movie, he has so many scenes and so many lines in this movie. And and pretty much all he does throughout the entire movie is monologue. He just does evil villain monologues all the time. Like he barely interacts with other characters, honestly, in like, you know, a back and forth dialogue. This is really kind of setting the scene for what this character is going to be doing throughout the whole dang thing. Yeah. And he's never going to be any more intimidating with a few exceptions, I guess. Than he is in this scene. We were talking about this before we started recording. He looks like Star Trek Mirror Universe Vanilla Ice, and he is no more intimidating than that. He has this terrible big black coat that um, I think is supposed to make him look more shadowy. He gets this half of the medallion, and the magic power that this half of the medallion has, the power of soul, which in his case means that he can turn into like a, a cartoon flat shadow man and possess people. He's got this like terrible leached like high top fade i guess it's just an awful look and like he's never intimidating the character is is so smug and so silly throughout the whole thing that like it's never possible to like really take him seriously as a threat i kept thinking back to raul julia's m bison from street fighter and i'm probably gonna make a lot of comparisons to street fighter as we talk about this but he's just so good in that and looking at this performance like this is just so much less like Raul Julia knew what kind of movie he was in. And I I presume Robert Patrick, he's a competent actor. He knows what kind of movie he's in as well. But he just doesn't quite nail the balance of good cartoon villain and whacked out, just just mad kind of, you know, almost intimidating villain, you know. And I I think part of I think a big problem, again, is the writing. I think this movie is just written (laughs) horribly. But I, I also guess that, you know, Robert Patrick just didn't quite have a good grasp on what the character should be. But also, this character was probably just made up whole cloth. Like, I don't think this character has a direct analog in any of the video games. Well, you know, he actually does, but he ha- but it's only in the one made after this movie where they intentionally put this character into the Double Dragon fighting game that was made as, like, the last boss. But no, he's not from the games at all. Like most of the stuff in this movie, he's totally invented for it. So there's not really anything that he can reference in sort of building this character. The direction is is not very good in this movie. So, you know, I don't think he was given a lot of help with that. The sets on Street Fighter conveyed some really good evil villain hideout where this is just an empty penthouse, you know? This is a ridiculously cheap looking movie. Like, this looks like the pilot for a television show from the mid-90s. Like, this looks like something that could have aired in a block with Hercules' The Legendary Journeys or or Xena, you know? They, I think, did what they could in, in trying to use, like, public spaces. Like, there's a scene set in a mall for some reason where like very clearly they just like went to a mall and gave it minimal set dressing and then just filmed there but all the sets that they they tried to put together for this just look terrible 
Some of this was shot on location. I believe uh, the Wikipedia page for this uh, says like it was shot on location in Ohio somewhere? In Cleveland. There's a bunch of thank yous and the credits to the city of Cleveland. I guess the, the boat chase scene was done there. Fun fact, apparently that river is in fact extremely polluted and has caught fire a few times. Oh, well, lovely. That makes the, the thing with the explosion even worse. We're still, you know, talking about Shuko or Koga, whatever you want to call him and his his hench people he's got oh my god i didn't even know about this part here i think his two henchmen here are named huey and lewis oh no really that's what imdb is telling me right now uh yeah that seems like the kind of thing this movie would do it is worth mentioning this movie is very frequently trying to be funny and i think Literally every joke in this movie is a failure. Oh, yeah, yes. I can say, you know, there's actually one thing that I thought was slightly amusing in this, and that is in the scene where the, the, the bad guys come to attack the abandoned theater that the Lees live in. Uh, at one point, for some reason, Billy locks a briefcase over one of the henchmen's ponytails after he falls down. And then in a later scene, the guy is up and doing stuff again, but he still has the briefcase clamped to the back of his head. That's the only thing that I thought was funny in this movie. Like, this random background joke that was probably, like, thought up on the day by, like, the set dresser or, like, the costume department. The only thing I thought was funny was, uh, well, actually, you know what, I'll just say it when we get there, because it's it's not too far from this scene here, but we also have uh, henchwoman Linda Lash, played by Christina Wagner, who I believe was a soap star. Yeah, she was a soap star. That's like the main thing that she's known for. Koga uses the medallion and then has some special effects done on him that make him look like he just transported into the AHA Take On Me video for some reason. Yeah, what this looks like is he becomes like a completely flat cardboard cutout CG person. It looks like a really cheap, bad version of the effect at the end of uh, Who Framed Rod Roger Rabbit, where Judge Doom has been, like, crushed by the steamroller, and he gets up and he's walking around again. Mm -hmm. It's like that, but so much worse. Yes, yeah. This movie is like a lot of things, but so much worse. Yeah, that's sort of one of its main through lines, actually. Yeah, so then we cut over to a scene of just a karate tournament, because we need to establish that the Lee brothers are martial artists. Well, one of them is. Uh, <laughs> yeah, one of them. The other one is, like, a, a less able version of the, like, pizza delivery guy sidekick from uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2. Again, that guy was a legitimate martial artist and was actually, like, one of the martial artists who played one of the turtles in the first movie. Right, they just didn't have him, like, do as much cool stuff, like, when he wasn't wearing the costume because they didn't want to upstage the freaking turtles honestly that kid would have been a way better billy lee why didn't he, why isn't he just billy lee that's a great question oh my goodness but yeah so like in in billy lee like we realized right away is like an incredibly short-sighted little piece of crap like he is just he's terrible he is so immature he and he just like he doesn't think five seconds ahead in this martial arts tournament they're all fighting and and they've kind of got everything tied up and he decides he's just going to like jump on the other guy's back and start giving him a noogie like like he's in the three stooges or something as if he thought that yeah. that was going to result in anything other than their disqualification like he acts surprised when they're like disqualified like 
what? My humorous antics aren't welcome at this martial arts tournament? It should be a, a learning moment for him, you'd think, but he's just going to keep doing that throughout the whole movie. This only would have been more in character if he just, like, pulled a banana peel out of his gi and threw it on the ground and... The other guys slipped on it, which honestly is not too far from what's going to happen in another scene. No, no, it's true. As all this is going on after they lose the tournament, an earthquake happens. And then we see a, a small person jacking up the building with a comically large jack. There's a fake commercial, kind of like a RoboCop style fake commercial that you see at one point in this for uh, a company that sells these jacks to keep your home uh, up in place post earthquake. So I guess this is supposed to be a thing, but this is literally the only place where it ever shows up in the movie. Yeah, this never comes back. This never comes back. What was this for? I guess it was just to establish that this version of New Angeles or whatever has been separated from the mainland United States because of the big one. Have they ever did they ever actually like go into what has happened? No, not not in detail. They basically say there was a giant earthquake a few years ago. It absolutely destroyed the city. That is apparently when all of the very colorful organized gang activity started. But beyond that, no, uh, it's not really gone into more than that. Some calamity has befallen the city and, and this is what remains of it, I guess. But again, like they don't do a good job of really explaining the greater implications of all this other than, hey, there's still gang activity. But I mean, as we see later, like some people are still living just fine. Marion's family seems to live in a completely normal suburb and it's apparently just like everything is totally fine during the day. But then it's like, oh, don't go out after six or you'll get beaten and robbed by a bunch of dudes dressed like mimes or something. Dressed like mimes with weird ball finger gloves. You and I both noticed independently is that there is this this, this really strange background detail where there's always some gang member in one of the big scenes with all the gangs that is wearing these like they're they're almost like Mickey Mouse hands or something. And it's not even the same person from scene to scene. It's just like somebody's always got these weird rubber ball finger hands on before the start of every scene like all the extras would just put their name in the hat like okay who gets to be ball fingers oh it's you <laughs> <laughs> i have to think that like again going back to the whole warriors comparison that like that glove was designed around the idea of like the scene from the warriors where the guy has the bottles on his hands and he's clacking them you know warriors yeah well because you always see the guys with the ball fingers doing kind of grabby hands or they're kind of clonking the balls together much like the bottles in the warriors so yeah it's so weird it is so weird but anyway where even were we uh we were just leaving the martial arts tournament actually yeah so we get a newscast in which vanna white um george Hamilton? Hamilton. George Hamilton. Yeah, who I, I'm, I'm not familiar with him, but I guess he was like a similarly famous person to Vanna White. I yes, yeah. And Andy Dick are all newscasters. And, like, not just that they're newscasters, but they are playing themselves as newscasters. I don't really get what the joke here is supposed to be, honestly, because the movie clearly thinks this is very funny. I have a little bit of a theory about this that doesn't really come into play until a little bit later on, but I I guess I'll just, I'll just spill the beans on this now. I was kind of getting an inkling halfway through this movie that this is kind of right-wing propaganda in a way. Okay. Like, I, I, don't, I don't actually think this is right-wing propaganda, but I, like, it, it just has these sensibilities of 
like right wing talking points. And one of those is like this idea that the media is this one big conglomeration that's conspiring against right wing talking points. And the media is typically entertainment media, but also just mainstream news media and more lefty news outlets. And so they've literally just combined those things into one mass that that is the, quote, media. I guess that could be it. That makes as much sense as anything to me, honestly. I, I've got to say, Andy Dick is the weather forecaster. Looking better here than I think he was looking by actual 2007. I would expect an Andy Dick with uh, access to the kind of unrestricted levels of vice that we are impl- supposed to assume is is happening in New Angeles would be looking a lot more haggard by this point. So uh, good for alternate universe Andy Dick keeping it tight in, in a way that he did not. Uh, Andy Dick's a bad person, y'all. I don't know if y'all know this, but he sucks. He's he's terrible in many, many different ways. Uh, not because of his substance abuse. Those are just problems that he has, but he is a bad person uh, for a lot of things that he's done. So That is disappointing, but also, like, not really surprising. <laughs> I loved him so much in that Voyager episode. I know, he was really good in that Voyager episode. That's that's actually one of the main things I think of him from whenever I think of Andy Dick. So <laughs> Andy's role in the newscast is mostly to let everybody know how much acid rain or, or smog or whatever is going to be happening throughout the city, because this is just sort of a, a, a common enough occurrence that we need the local news to let us know ahead of time so that we know, like, hey, do we need to stay near our ventilation fans today so that we don't choke to death on smoke movies a lot of like kind of sci-fi movies from the 90s loved to make jokes about acid rain or like extreme smog uh this one is dumber than most of them at one point we see what to me looks literally like just like an enormous oscillating desk fan getting getting installed on the roof of a skyscraper (laughs) this is barely a joke it's barely a sight gag Um, and they also let us know about the curfew so they're kind of establishing a lot of uh in movie lore for us here as we find out about all this i guess um is this the point where the the lee brothers are now leaving in their weird trash powered car yeah that's right their weird trash powered car with like it literally it's it's like a panel station wagon with a jet engine on the back this is this movie's approach to future cars is they just bought what looks like the cheapest possible used vehicles and then just strapped some like from party city onto them basically you know <laughs> right in the center between the the driver and passenger seat there's a little uh steel well that just kind of op- opens up into a portal to hell apparently where you just throw garbage in and that's what powers the the rocket engine on the back of the car once once again it's like a much worse version of something from another movie in this case it's like a real cheap riff on like the mr fusion from back to the future too i think yeah they have some gags with that where they keep throwing different stuff into it to make the car go faster because they're about to be involved in a chase with one of our movie's other main characters before that happens though billy wants to pull over because he sees what he believes to be a woman fixing her car Uh uh-huh yeah i'm not saying i think this is like right-wing propaganda in a malicious way just maybe like a, a 
a careless and lazy sort of way. This kind of horrible sort of mentality was just in the ether. Like, this was just, like, a mainstream, uncontroversial sort of thing to have in a movie like this in the 90s, and it f***ing sucks. I know you're gonna have to bleep that, but it it sucks. So we, it, it's revealed that it's not a schoolgirl, it's a man, baby, yeah! There you go. There you go. Yeah. And then one of them literally says something that I'm fairly certain would be considered a transphobic slur today, so yep. I'm just not even going to say it. Again, I don't think that's what they were actually going for here, but <sighs> that's how it reads now. Effect matters more than intent, so it's not a good look. This person was not being harassed by all of the gang members who were just swarming the streets, so obviously they were with them and, and part of some kind of plot. And of course it is a plot, so immediately tons of gang members come out of the woodwork and attempt to, to kind of swarm the Lees and uh, their car. And this is where we actually get um, the, the one thing that I think is very, very funny in this movie is uh, we see a big guy step out of a giant truck straight out of the that weird Stephen King movie that he directed himself. <laughs> yeah. I think like they pull down the car's visor and there's a little computer there with mug shots of prominent gang members, I guess. And these mug shots, however, are gifts, which are also accompanied by sounds. <laughs> and so... They pull up Boa Bobo, who is the person getting out of the truck, and it's just like this repeating gif of him, like, of the camera, like, zooming in and out of, you know, like, from his face, and he's just going like, Moby Dick over there is Boa Bobo. Yeah, that actually is pretty good. That is, that is pretty good, yeah. And I don't know if that was supposed to be a funny thing or if it was just like, oh, hey, isn't this a cool future technology we have? But that was maybe like the only time I, I actually laughed from something that I would kind of enjoyed in a way uh, from this film. Uh, Bobo comes over and he's all like, hey there, we're going to need some money from you. Um, because like, really, it seems like th they just want 50 bucks. They, they just want 50 bucks, man. And once again, the, the gangs are so organized that when they pull up a Bobo's like data file on the car's onboard computer, it literally says like, pay $50 toll to pass. <laughs> this is so organized that like, you know how much the gang members are going to shake you down for in different parts of town. Uh, of course, they don't want to pay the 50. They might not have it, to, to be fair. That's true. They don't really seem to have a lot of money. But still, uh, they they crack wise on a Bobo, which is not a smart thing to do. Yep. So now uh, car chase ensues. And uh, if you're watching it on YouTube, I believe that car chase happens in silence. Uh, about half of it. Like, it kind of flips back and forth, you know? Probably as the song fades in and out, honestly. Yeah. I was um, I was watching this part of the movie on an app called Tubi. And around this time, it interrupted with a commercial break, which included, among other things, a commercial for Fox News. And at that point, I stopped watching Tubi. Not a great sign. Yeah. yeah don't watch Tubi. <laughs> Tubi. Um, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so to evade a Bobo, they do, among other things, they, they grab a map out of their glove box, which... The camera, like, zooms in on the map. Did somebody vomit on the map? It sure looks like it. I guess it could also be some of the cheese whiz that we see later on in the scene. 
Uh, but it's it's really bad looking, and all these cars seem to have GPS, so I don't even get why you'd have a map. A Bobo's truck has a friggin' periscope. Billy throws the map onto the truck's windshield. They can't see, but Bulk and Skull, I mean, uh, a Bobo and What's-His-Face uh, <laughs> just lift up a little parasol, and now they can see again. Also, there's, you know, like a computer monitor and a freaking joystick. You know, because video game movie and not the last we'll see a video game stuff in this movie. No, that's that's true. Actually, the, the chase ensues. They chase them into an alley and everybody's about to hit a wall and they're screaming for a, a very, very long time, almost like to the point where, like, I was expecting an Austin Powers esque cutaway where they're actually moving really slow to, like, subvert your expectations. That would have been an actual joke, which this movie doesn't really do. No, it's just doing the tired, cliched cartoon gag where people are screaming for a long time about to hit something. And then they, they don't even really hit anything. They just kind of, like, get wedged in between like some wreckage and the the wall of a building yeah i'm not really at all clear on what the like the physical logistics of that car crash are but it i guess works out okay for them the lees and uh satori get out of the car and they just kind of say oh hey a bobo's never going to be able to get out of that wreckage and like i don't know why they thought that the co- the, the door looks fine it, yeah it looks fine and unobstructed yeah and it's not like a bobo has to use his apparently like superhuman strength to like rip the door off off to get out or anything he just opens it um we do learn earlier that uh, a bobo can lift 800 pounds so he's a very strong man and I will say, like, you know, a Bobo, like, his design here is all right. The actor playing him is is appropriately large and pretty intimidating looking. And the costume that they've got him in isn't so ridiculous or plain that it, that it takes away from the character. His face paint is fine. They do kind of, like, get in some, like, vaguely racist Native American jabs at a Bobo, maybe hinting that yep. he's supposed to be Native American, but I don't know if that's actually... I certainly don't know what, what ethnicity the actor playing him is, uh, which is uh, Nils Allen Stewart is the name of the actor. Um, yeah. I don't know what his ethnicity is, so... So I don't know if that's just weird or if it's racist. I, who knows? It could be one or both, honestly. <laughs> that's that's uh, true. You know, totally possible. At some point during this, Abobo sees the medallion that Satori has and is like, oh, nice, nice jewelry. And, you know, wants to take it and uh, they won't let him have it. Yeah, this medallion that has all of these mystical powers attached to it. And she's just wearing it around this awful, dangerous city. Completely ridiculous. So Abobo and his henchman, who I don't think is ever given a name, even though we see him like several times. In the credits, I think he's just called Mohawk, which is funny because that's the gang that they're part of. And they all have Mohawks, which is why they're called that, I guess. But he's the only other dude from that gang that we ever really see. Before Abobo and Mohawk can beat up the Lees and take Satori's medallion, which honestly, like, I mean, IRL, these people are not martial artists, but in the world of the movie, we're supposed to assume that the Lees and Satori are capable martial artists. Like, this could have been a cool fight sequence with, you know, like three capable martial artists versus, you know, kind of like one immovable object of a man. One big guy, yeah. This could have been a cool scene, but... We don't get that. Instead, a bunch of people start rappelling over the side of the buildings and also just turning around because they've camouflaged themselves in denim jackets with graffiti against the graffiti scrawled wall as if they just stand there all day. 
waiting for somebody to wander into the alley. Did they think this looked cool? I guess. I don't know. It, when we were watching this, I, I turned to my partner and was like, oh no, the children of the forest are here. <laughs> the, the children of the cinder block. But yeah. yeah, right, yeah. Uh, so yeah, this is this is Marion and her anti-gang. Yes, th- this is the power core. Here's what I'm talking about with the writing in this movie and, and like just how much of a mess it is. So we see the, the power core members start to reveal themselves. And a Bobo and Mohawk see them. And a Bobo, who's a very intimidating figure, who was, you know, again, felt quite capable of going up against three martial artists... And I mean, you know, everybody knows who everybody is in this world for some reason, so I'm going to assume he knows that they're the Lees. Although, actually, no, he doesn't know that, does he? Well, they pull that up on on their computer and get their stupid mugshots. Yeah, yeah, it's just uh, everybody has mugshots. Oh my god, is this like, is this one of those weird Christian apocalypse movies? You know, may, maybe it is. Maybe it's a Left Behind movie and we just didn't know it. We gotta let the god-awful movie people know about this. <laughs> so th- these people, there is something about them. Abobo does not want any part of this, so he and Mohawk leave. And then the Lees turn around and see them all there and say, oh, great, the power core. So we're, we're kind of setting this group up to be like this, you know, intimidating ruler of the gangs or whatever. And it just turns out, nah, they're just a bunch of, you know, kind of do-gooders and vigilantes, and they're not even there to mess up the lease or anything. They're just, you know, kind of there to say, hey, you know, we should join forces. Like, just the way that they're introduced doesn't mesh with the rest of the scene. Because the power core are extremely non-threatening. They're a bunch of nice kids with skateboards and 90s fashion that makes them look like basically. As the police captain later says, they're uh, they're doing our job. And their their leader is uh, Alyssa Milano's uh, Marion, who uh, Marion from the video games is there to get kidnapped and or killed at the beginning of every game. So I will say, you know, happy to see a Marion who's a much that's an upgrade. Yeah, a much more active participant in what's going on. So that's neat. Never gets captured throughout the entirety of this movie. That does not ever happen to her. That's kind of a fun choice. Uh, good, good choice. She's here. She's got like bleached, really, really short haircut. Uh, there's a really annoying scene where the Lees both ogle her butt while she's turned around, uh, which will come back later in the movie. They'll just keep doing that one. She tries to kind of give them like a, a pitch that apparently she's given them before of how, you know, they should join forces with her and help clean up the town. And they they all just kind of go on their way, right? You know, Jimmy seems to really appreciate the power core and what they do while... Billy just seems to think that they're a bunch of troublemakers. And so, I mean, like the power core are obviously supposed to be like kind of analogous to like freedom fighters or civil rights activists. I I think that's what they're going for. Yeah. Okay. so I will say, you know, I've talked about how I think this movie is kind of right wing. The power core are never positioned as, you know, like, oh, hey, they've got the right ideas, but they're going about it the wrong way and and being vilified. I mean, like they're vilified in that way by the cops, but the movie does not seem to be I, I do not think the movie has that opinion of them. The movie seems to think that they are in the right and frames them as such. Actually, the movie kind of presents the idea that the power core have been the victims of like a media smear campaign, presumably because Kogashuko is this like super rich capitalist. I guess he owns an enormous amount of the city already presumably his company's been like spreading lies about the power core in any case um yeah this this whole scene just kind of ends up being nothing billy says hey you guys are part of the problem i mean you're all breaking curfew out here even though like 
you're doing the same thing right now. I don't know if you get to throw that stone, buddy, but whatever. I don't know what happens after this. Do we go back to Koga's lair with a Bobo or, or do we go back to the Lee's apartment? I can't remember. Um, I don't I don't remember which one happens first, but it kind of doesn't matter, I guess. So we can talk about Obobo and Kogashuko first. So basically, uh, the next time we see Obobo, he's in Koga's like kind of, you know, office informing him about like the medallion and the fact that he saw it on these two Lee brothers, you know, in their possession. I think he thinks he's going to get a reward for telling Koga this, but actually Koga's pretty mad at him for not getting the medallion and bringing it to him. He, he tells him, you know, like, hey, these are the guys you let get away. Abobo's like, well, I didn't know who they were. And then Abobo, again, a man who can lift 800 pounds, is then led away by a small woman and two middle-aged Asian men to an elevator I guess the writers forgot that he can bench press 800 pounds. I don't know. When they get to where they're going, which is Koga's secret genetic engineering augmentation lab, which looks like it's in like a garage. He's like, like, oh, yeah, we're going to inject you with serums that are going to make you super strong. Bobo's like, I'm already super strong. This thing will kill me. Seems to extrapolate that because he already has the strength of 10 men, that giving him the strength of 10 more men will probably kill him or do something awful to him. And uh, Koga's just kind of like, oh, yeah, maybe. And there's just writing here that is just so nearly nonsensical, where Koga's like, but you've always been like a son to me, a Bobo, which like that doesn't follow from what you just said. But like, you know, like too many butts in there, first of all, but like all sons, I can just have another one, you know, or something like that. So, like, that's one of many lines in this that the movie clearly thinks is very clever because it, like, kind of pauses afterwards for you to really soak it in. And it's not. It basically makes no sense. Uh, and it's not funny. Like the Lee's reaction to the power core and then the scene that immediately follows, it's like, did one person write the first part of a dialogue and then another person write the second part and they weren't allowed to talk to each other? Like, how do you get dialogue this bad? I don't know, especially since we haven't talked really about, like, the production side of this movie much. This movie has two people credited for the story, one of which is Paul Dini, the very well-known writer for, like, things like Batman the Animated Series and uh, who has written a bunch of comic books. And it has two people credited for the screenplay, one of which is Peter Gould, who is the co-creator of Better Call Saul and who wrote a bunch of, like, Breaking Bad. Yeah. There were clearly talented people that worked on this. I don't know how it ended up quite so terrible as this, given that. Yeah, it really is baffling. I, I will say one thing that this movie has in its favor. Their weird genetic chamber does at least look more intimidating than the one from Street Fighter. The chamber, which looks like a an evil dentist chair, like opens up like pod style, kind of. And then uh, a Bobo screams and we cut to a different scene. And, and again, like I can't remember the, the exact order of scenes here. I know we get a scene with the Lees, and we also get a scene of Marion at home. The scene with Marion at home is very funny, because this is where it reveals that her dad is actually the police chief. And it also reveals that she apparently has successfully managed to keep him from finding out about how her hair looks by always wearing this terrible-looking brunette wig uh, while she's at home. Like, it looks nothing like real hair, but her dad, a uh, great 
policeman that he is does not seem to notice. Yeah, and we also get a little bit of back and forth between Marion and her father. He's just credited as Chief Delario, I guess is their last name. So Delario, we'll, I'll say the chief. They're arguing back and forth about, you know, if the power core is good or not. And he's saying, well, you know, the power core is threatening this, you know, uneasy truce that we have with the gangs. And we're just we're just trying to keep people safe by letting the gangs run rampant at night. And uh, and she's saying, yeah, well, actually, the power core are good and you are wrong. And that's pretty much all this scene is i guess we're introduced to her little brother as well who's an absolutely pointless character like he's in like two scenes and never does anything one interesting thing here that i'm seeing about him in imdb if i can find him again now that person's name is Corey milano could that be her actual brother you know what that makes sense he could actually be her real life brother which would explain why he's even in the movie because aside from just having a couple of scenes where he's a snarky jerk to her he doesn't do anything he uses a vr headset at one point so basically just so they can have a little bit more cg in the movie when they show what he's doing on the vr okay i just looked up his trivia and yes he is in fact the younger brother of Alyssa milano so there you go i'm sure he's fine it's just yeah a, a very unnecessary character in this movie but i mean like this entire movie is unnecessary so you know we see them in this very nice suburban home so apparently society has not crumbled quite so much that like that sort of thing doesn't exist. It also sort of throws more of a monkey wrench into the whole freedom fighter thing because like she's doing fine. All of the the bad gang members seem to be living in much poorer conditions than she is of what we see of them anyway. It's not she's not even living in the Nickelodeon slime factory with the rest of the power core <laughs> that we see later on. After this scene, we get a scene with the Leaves and Satori and we learn a little bit more about their backstory. Uh Satori tells them about how, you know, she promised their like both their fathers or just their father. So I like I don't know what Satori's connection is here like because I thought like her dad also died but maybe I'm wrong about that I don't know I don't think that's ever mentioned here I don't know it's strange but yeah she gives them kind of the lowdown on what the deal is with the medallion yeah which she puts on Billy I don't get that at all yeah he is the last person in that room who should be carrying that thing I mean really that thing should probably be locked up or hidden somewhere but that is like the last person I would trust with anything valuable in the slightest in any case, she, for whatever reason, gives it to him. He's he's wearing it around his neck. You know, and again, he's just generally acting like a little brat, wisecracking as, as she's telling their backstory, who, which I would assume they already know by this point. Yeah, it's just, it's bad writing. It's like, there's no reason why she would have waited this long to tell them all this stuff. I, I mean, she apparently just wears the thing around like it's a damn necklace, so they've seen it before. I don't know. In any case, uh, is this also the scene where they get attacked by Huey and Lewis? Yeah, it is. Uh, Kogashuko shows up and uh, reveals that he also personally knew their dad and knows Satori and she even calls him by the name that he he used before he started calling himself Kogashuko before he started like like just being all like, yeah, no, I'm, I'm gonna, I've got an Asian name now. You know, I like spend so much time over there that I feel like, you know, I, you can't just do that. That's not OK. It's like the white guy who finds out that they're like insignificant Native American. It's like, oh, well, my name's uh, Birch Tree now. So, you know, or some, yeah, some right. dumb crap like that. Like uh, saying this as a fellow white person who's insignificant Native American, 
your insignificant Native American doesn't matter. That's for people who are actually Native American. Stop appropriating that. So anyway, a fight ensues. And this is where we cut between Mark Dacascus actually doing some pretty impressive stunt work in, in martial arts and Billy opening up gumball machines to make the other guy slip like he's freaking Daniel Stern in Home Alone. At one point, he also throws basketballs at guys from, like, a, a ledge, you know, just some real penny-ante, annoying little brother stuff, basically. Yeah, we all know that basketballs are like kryptonite to martial artists, so there's no way that that guy could have withstood such a barrage. Also, they've apparently just, like, done up their home, which is an abandoned theater, by the way. Like, that's some pretty sweet digs, honestly. But they've also done it up to basically be an American Gladiators course. Yeah, it's got all these climbing walls and obstacle course stuff. Basically, all of the places where good guys live in this movie look like sets from Nickelodeon game shows. Which I'm all about. That's, that's my life goal, is just to be able to buy an abandoned building and just make it into a, like a giant Nickelodeon American Gladiator, which I guess would just be Nickelodeon Guts at that point, set of some kind. I'm just going to rebuild that set, and I, I just live there now. If you want to enter my domain, you must climb the aggro crag. <laughs> uh, so anyway, uh, fighting ensues. Uh, Koga possesses Satori and pretends to just be regular old Satori for a beat so that he can fool the Lees into trusting him. And then he tries to get the medallion from them and they have to fight Satori. They lock her in a cage, after which Koga releases his mind control on her. At this point, we're all pretty certain, oh, this character's gonna die, isn't she? Yeah, which uh, she will in just a couple minutes, actually. Yep, so they're like, oh, it's a shame you locked her in that cage, because this place looks pretty flammable, so they light the place on fire. As they're trying to get her out of the cage that they locked her in, was this a weird one-time close cage that permanently seals after you do that? I don't get how this is so much of a problem. Yeah, eventually the way she gets out is she just kicks the lock off. It's not even like this is how she dies, which I'm, I'm very happy about, by the way. Yeah, that would have been kind of awful in a way that... I don't think even this movie would do, honestly. That would have been, you know, like 100% just fridging the character. Yeah. Whereas what happens gives her a little bit more agency over the situation. But but it, it does sort of beg the question, like, why did they even bother doing the thing with the cage? Like, she even says, you know, like, just go. You have to get out of here. Leave with the medallion. So you do think that, like, okay, she's just telling them to leave and that's going to be it. But no, she gets out. And then as they're leaving, uh, Koga tries to stop them. Uh, they all leave, but she closes the door behind them after they exit the building and locks it because she is going to hold off Koga so that he can't get the medallion. Except the building explodes immediately after that. And Koga is fine because he's magic now. So it's a pretty pointless death, honestly. It is. Again, I am happy that the character at least got to sort of make the decision in, in this heroic self-sacrifice or what she thought was a heroic self-sacrifice rather than just, well, I'm the damsel who gets killed, I guess. So darn i'm your dead surrogate mom so yeah she's dead but koga's not dead and you know who else is not dead a bobo who we forgot to mention but he shows up in this scene again as well and it is now a bobo 2.0 this is the abobo post-transformation from the bizarre science experiment that's been done on him and he's now a 
Power Rangers villain, basically. Like, yeah, just like the most grotesque Power Rangers villain you could imagine. Like his body has just been inflated. And I do not see what this gained anybody. He had a henchman who could bench press 800 pounds. Now he's got a guy who could maybe bench press... 1600 pounds if he could actually fit on the weight bench or move his arms in such a way to still perform the motions but he can barely move he's so inflated now that he can barely move and also it's worth mentioning that even though this is all supposed to be muscle uh from this point on uh abobo's scenes will be pretty much wall-to-wall fat phobic jokes as well and it's a different actor playing him now. It's a different guy playing him than than was playing the non-super-juiced-up version of a Bobo. Yeah, this is now going to be a Bobo for the rest of the movie, and he's going to be uh, our comic relief character, because this movie, which is already full of pratfalls and cartoon sound effects, definitely needed a, an actual designated comic relief guy. Every scene that this character is in after this is going to serve almost no purpose. The Lees are, are very, very sad about... About uh, Satori being dead and everything. They're being sad over by a river and they have dead mom angry fight argument. That's how men in movies process that sort of thing. At one point, Jamie, I guess, throws a, a red lunchbox that had all these like pictures of the, all their like pictures of them with Satori in it uh into the river real dick move that is i would have expected that from billy but you jimmy come on yeah jimmy comes off pretty badly in this scene actually he's been like the way more reasonable one up to this point but right now he's just hey get over it we gotta figure out what to do next you know what he's being a real bimmy right now is what he's being don't be a bimmy y'all don't be a bimmy at this point I, I think we get from here to um boat chase i think we're probably leaving out some scenes again i am not going to go back and check not exactly so this part of the movie i thought was like interminable like this was probably the worst part of the movie for me and this is the the part where it does just straight up become the warriors for about 15 minutes so their cars messed up probably because billy threw a can of cheese whiz into the engine earlier to make it go faster and now it's all gummed up so they have to walk and they are immediately beset by this like enormous army of of gang members who are all i guess there's sort of like an apb within the gangs out for the lees now because everybody knows that koga wants the medallion they get confronted by this giant cadre of different gangs that all chase them there's a scene where they're hiding in like a, a shack like a boathouse while the gangs are trying to get in like it's like a zombie movie one point a guy who i think may actually be just like a postman who's also a gang member oh yeah what the hell i don't know like jumps like basically like suicide dives off of this the the top of this like industrial facility or something to try to like fall on them and he just falls in the mud and it's a funny gag and he doesn't die because this movie's a cartoon basically i want to unpack this though like is there a postman themed gang or is this just like the mailman has gone rabid or something what is what is happening here i don't know this was one of the most confusing things in the movie for me because we never see other gang members dressed like postman and this guy has like letters and yes. stuff like he's got like a <laughs> sack full of mail yes and he, he like even throws some of the mail around like this is just his he's the mail themed batman villain like what on earth is happening here i don't know i got nothing for this 
this, really. See, okay, this is more evidence that this movie's right wing. They're anti-post office. Yeah, there is actually, like, a stupid joke. After the mailman, like, falls down, one of the leads is like, I've never seen a mailman move that fast before. Yes, he does! Oh, y'all, that joke does not play in 2020. <laughs> no. Mm-mm, no. No, it does not. So they run into, like, a little house on the dock where there's a, a, a cool murder boat and all the gang members are screaming, ah, uh, they killed Cyrus, I guess. And uh, I think uh, at one point, one of them hits Mohawk in the eye with a broom handle or something. Yeah, and I think it takes his eye out because when we see him later on in the movie, he's like wearing an eye patch over it. So they they manage to get the boat started and then boat chase happens. Yeah, and the boat chase goes on forever. Inexplicably, there's a couple of, I guess they're gang members on jet skis that immediately follow them out and start this boat chase. So I'm curious uh, about the boat chase uh, and your reaction to it. What did you think about the cross-cutting from the big, like, matte paintings of, like, ruined L.A. that's been flooded and the actual footage (laughs) they shot on this river in Ohio? I think they did their very best (laughs) to make that look seamless. Most of the boat chase is shot, like, up close, and it's clearly just them, like, actually on a river driving this speedboat. And every time we cut to, like, a wide shot, it's these, like, extremely detailed map paintings of, like, them kind of, like, going down this river that is now formed in, like, the flooded downtown L.A. So, like, they're they're going past, like, the Hollywood sign next to the river, and they're going back down past like the like tops of the Chinese theater that you can see poking out of the water. Wait, don't they call it the Japanese theater? I don't know. I don't know. I think I remember hearing them say the Japanese theater and I was like, wait, what? Did they change it from Chinese to Japanese at some point in the fiction of this world? Apparently, maybe they did. I didn't catch that. But then whenever they cut back, it's really obviously they're just filmed this on like a river in like rural Ohio because there's like nothing along the banks. Like it's they, they try to do like you said, I think they did the best they could but yeah it's really obvious that these two things do not match up apparently um wherever they were filming it wasn't rural enough because uh from what i read on wikipedia the special effect explosion that they do at the uh end of the scene caused a lot of residents nearby to call emergency services and be like what the hell is happening that's not great not amazing this is like again you know something that street fighter had a problem with as well filming on location in places where like maybe they needed to clear a few more things they they almost caused a war with in like myanmar right i think so when they were doing street fighter Because they had helicopters and they thought, like, the neighboring country thought that there was about to be an attack? Yeah, something like that. I don't know. But, yeah, it it wasn't great. But in any case, uh, we get uh, the Lee brothers kind of popping up from the river after uh, Koga has decided that, up there's no way they survived that. So he's going to have his... guys go in there and and check the river and find that medallion so the lee brothers however they they swim off to safety after kind of you know some some funny remarks about how polluted the river is which you know i mean fair probably it probably was in real life too at this point they decide that it's time to get some help so they go to the power core power core and as i kind of alluded to earlier this is quite a set for the the power core hideout it looks like it's like a warehouse but it is full of arcade games there's a bunch of like fun family-friendly graffiti on the walls uh there's like ropes and balconies everywhere and there's just a river 
of Nickelodeon green slime running through this thing. And, like, apparently this is where a lot of the, the members of the Power Corps who are all, like, kids and young teenagers live. It's a cool, fun place to hang out while you fight the gangs and, and you know, defy authority, but in a really friendly, safe way. Hey, I'm all about it. it that place looked awesome to me. I would have hung out there as a kid. So the leaves have to go in, and they fall into the, the minecart level of the movie. Oh, yeah, that's right. They do. It then dumps them out onto a, onto a nice little mat, uh, you know, so that nobody gets hurt. And then they are surrounded by uh, some very intimidating-looking five-year-olds. But then Alyssa Milano comes over, and she's like, hey, everybody, stand down. It's all right. Is that that scene? Does that scene keep going? Um, I think it keeps going a little bit because it also has the bit where they're trying to figure out how to use the medallion and everybody's kind of making fun of them. They have the idea that they should try to do it. They should try to use the medallion together. So they both grab it. There's uh, this sort of eerie humming noise in the background, but it turns out it's just like some dude with one of those plastic tubes that you swing around to make that sound. Oh, I remember those. Yeah. Yeah. Also, I guess we get we get Obobo again, right? Yeah, we get we get Obobo again, who is I guess been captured by the Power Core and is being tortured by Marion by like making him eat a bunch of spinach. This is more like fat phobic. Oh, uh-huh, they're making the fat guy eat a bunch of healthy stuff. I guess is what they're going for. None of this makes any sense, honestly. But but I mean, like they are torturing him for information about Koga, which like he should be pretty willing to give up because Koga did just kind of leave him there. Like we see them pull him out of some rubble in an earlier scene that I forgot about. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I don't know what sort of loyalty he still feels like he should have towards Koga. I mean, he did all this crap to him at this point. He does start working with the power core by the end of this. Marion's making him eat a bunch of spinach through a funnel and he's making a bunch of fart sounds, which uh, hilarious again. Okay. That was the second time I laughed because farting. I, honestly, I cannot remember how we get from here to them infiltrating Koga's skyscraper, but that is the next thing that happens. Well, actually, no, we do get a scene with the police department being hounded by the press. And this was the scene that really started making me think like, oh, this is a right wing movie is the members of the press start surrounding police chief Marion's dad. They are immediately starting to, to ask questions like, hey, what about those gang members? Don't they have rights too? Because obviously what's prompted this is yeah, that right. the gang has just launched an attack on the Lees and are now, uh, according to a news broadcast, also attacking the police who are trying to investigate it. It would seem that not only have the has the gang broken their truce, but are now actively being antagonistic towards the police again. We're, we're all thinking, you know, like, okay, the press wants to know why have the gangs done all of this? What do they, you know, do the police know anything about why the gangs might be doing this? And are immediately asking questions about, like, don't the gang members have rights, too? Maybe they're just being misunderstood. And it's very obvious that we're meant to think that people are being fools. And so, like, this goes back to what I was saying about their whole perception of the media is, you know, like, here's your liberal bleeding heart wing of the media, I guess. And and again, you know, it's all just one big amorphous blob to to right wingers. They're, They're incapable of any sort of nuance. They're making these jokes, but honestly, yeah, what is the deal with these gangs? 
they're clearly like not living high on the hog, right? Like they they seem to be, you know, on the fringes of society. They they don't seem to have comfortable living conditions that we ever see. I mean, maybe it's possible they're all like Marion in the Power Core. They all go to a nice suburban home at the end of the day, but I'm going to say probably not. Probably not, yeah. You know, so like yeah, like the gangs like have control of the city at night, but like what's really in it for them? Like, you know, a, a random 50 here and there from people who broke curfew. It does seem like the gang members are victims of whatever calamity has befallen society just as much as people like in the power core are, except for the people who get to go to a nice, comfortable suburban home at the end of the day. So it's like, yeah, they're doing the the, the stupid, oh, we're bleeding heart liberals thing. But it's but it's actually like, how about like that? But unironically, the gangs in this movie are just presented as being like a uh, wholly evil, unified front of a force. And we even get a scene that we didn't mention earlier on where the gangs all have like a big meeting and uh, Koga shows up and uses his shadow powers to kill the guy who I guess was previously in charge of all of the gangs and take control of them himself. Yeah, like I'm supposed to assume that there was one guy who was in charge of all of them who that they would all take orders from. Even before he does this, like he's clearly able to recruit some of them to his cause. I mean, he had a Bobo there, so. I don't know, the whole thing, the world building in this isn't great. I don't know if you've noticed that, folks listening at home, but it's not exactly an airtight, well thought out fictional universe universe. I do want to talk a little bit about that scene, too, in which uh, Koga murders whoever that guy was. It's almost a good effect with, with the shadow creeping along the wall and everything where Koga turns into a shadow, basically, and strangles the guy, except for, like, the other guy isn't casting a shadow. So we literally just see a shadow behind him making a strangle motion, supposedly, you know, like Darth Vadering this dude, essentially. It would have been a cooler effect if we saw both shadows but we only saw the one guy like that would have been kind of cool. And I, I, you know, that that would have at least made for a really good shot, even if it didn't make for a truly spectacular effect. I'm not going to say it's one of many missed opportunities in this movie, because most of this movie isn't really even things that could have been done better, honestly. Uh, but that one is that one's a missed opportunity for something that could have looked cool and kind of evocative. Then I guess we we get to the power core deciding to help the Lee brothers break into Koga's stronghold so that they can get the medallion half back that Koga has. Oh, right. I guess we didn't even really reveal that, um, or we didn't even really touch on the fact that Koga reveals to Satori in that earlier scene that he has the other half of the medallion already in his possession, which is why he wants to get the, the other half from the Lees so bad. The Lees and Marion sneak in through a vent. All of the other Power Core kids are just going to start, like, raining havoc by rollerblading and skateboarding within the building's lobby, which which actually, you know what? Effective strategy. This is one of the few times in the movie is trying to tap into some, like, 90s alternative kid energy, I guess. Yeah, you know, that works. Yeah, they're all drinking some Capri Sun, and Marion uh, crawls into the, the vent, and the brothers fight over who's going to uh, follow her because... They want to look at her butt. Lisa Milano, she got nice legs in this movie, I ain't going to lie, like... She's really freaking cute. Weird pants, but nice legs, yes. I'm not going to judge him for, you know, wanting to follow her in there, you know, that's all I'm saying. They're crawling around the ventilation system, and this eventually just leads them to a vent shaft directly over his main penthouse where he's done all of his evil briefings. And I should say, like... Koga himself would call them evil briefings. He would, definitely. This is another thing that I really hate about this character. For as cartoonish as Street Fighter was, 
Even M. Bison had that one monologue in the middle of the movie where he is justifying his cartoonishly villainous actions. And, like, it's a monologue that, like, you can almost get behind in a sort of twisted kind of way. You can believe that he believes it. Koga's equivalent here is him whining, like, all I want is absolute control of a major American city. Is that too much to ask? Yeah. He's so upfront about, like, yup, I'm the bad guy. It reminded me of a sketch from All That. Do you remember the, the Super Dude sketches where, where Keenan Thompson would play, like, the yeah. more cowardly Superman and who was uh, lactose intolerant. Uh-huh. So in one sketch, he's fighting against Yogurl, who's a, a yogurt woman played by Kel Mitchell. This line of dialogue sticks out to me because it was just so great. He says, why do you want to do this to me? And Yogurl says, well, you see, I am evil am made of a dairy product and you are good and just happen to be harmed by dairy. So it seemed like the right thing to do. Yeah, it's, it's like treating that like that's like an actual justification for why this guy exists and that you should take him at least a little bit seriously in this movie. They get to Koga's penthouse and this is right when Marion's dad is actually there meeting with Koga and Koga is trying to bribe him into, I guess being even more lax about the gang thing than the police are already being just just let them do their thing during the daytime as well and i'll give you a bunch of money you know it's worked for jeff bezos so yeah that is true but yeah so so we 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 just happen to have all of the surviving main characters of this movie all in one place right now i guess with the exception of a bobo the lees are gonna try and get the medallion back by lowering like a chain through the vent because the medallion just happens to be directly under that vent it's just on his desk nobody's good at safeguarding these medallions in this movie like it doesn't matter what side you're on it's just like oh yeah i can just hang out there it's fine while koga and uh police chief marion's dad are having their conversation lash is noticing that there is something coming down through the vent and instead of saying something like hey what the hell is coming out of that vent? She just silently grabs a... Like a polearm thing. Yeah, I forget what that weapon's called. It's got a name, and I, I can't remember what it is. It's like a pike or something. She just th- starts thrusting it through the vent after uh, Billy fails to actually get the medallion back, which, like, how the hell was he going to fit it through the slots in that vent? I don't think it was going to fit. One of his many bad ideas. Yeah, it's almost like Billy doesn't think things through all that well. So at this point, they all fall through the vents. Marion says, oh no, Dad, does this mean I'm grounded? Ha ha ha. There's some fight in here. Uh, Lash has been carrying around a whip for the entire movie and not used it at all, I think. Well, she used it to lead a Bobo away earlier. Oh, that's true. That's true. Maybe that whip just happened to weigh 900 pounds, and that's why you couldn't do anything about it. So they fight, and then the Lees and Marion kind of escape down just like an open elevator shaft that's in it's on the at, at the side of of the penthouse you'd think there'd be at least doors on the elevator but whatever they end up down in koga's secret laboratory with a bunch of dead people on on slabs which causes marion to scream and for one of the leads probably billy to make some stupid joke about dead people and uh koga follows them down with his shadow powers possesses a very tall man in like a basketball uniform who's who's dead he was possessed okay i totally did not read this as him possessing them but like i read this more as like he had done something to them and they were coming back as zombies but what you just said makes way more no, sense it's I, i'm pretty sure it's just koga and then they drop a a big metal blast door on him 
uh, to to kill that body. But Koga ends up being able to grab Jimmy and drag him off while Billy and Marianne escape. So Jimmy's been captured Yes, at this point. We're getting pretty close to the end here. Uh, there's really only a little bit left at this point, actually. We have a short sort of interrogation scene where Koga tries to get Jimmy to talk about, I guess, where Marion and Billy would have run off to. And uh, tells him that uh, he killed their dad. Give them some more motivation, I guess. While back at the Power Core base, Billy and Marion are commiserating. They almost kiss for some reason. I don't get that. Completely unearned uh, romantic chemistry here. <laughs> like, it was not present at all earlier. I mean, especially since Billy was always the w- was the one who was, like, more resistant to the idea of what the Power Core even were. Like... He thought they they were part of the problem. It makes even less sense that he would be the one who like is is suddenly thrust into this romantic relationship with Marion. But yeah, whatever. Sorry, we are kind of jumping around here, but uh, in, in this sort of little bit of of in between time, Police Chief Marion's dad goes back to the police department and he's like, "All right, boys, it's time to ride out and uh, stop these gangs because." My daughter has been doing our job for us and fighting these gangs, so we need to step up here. And uh, they get ready to go take back the streets. Um, so yeah, Billy and Marion get interrupted from being able to kiss by Koga and all of the gangs and uh, all of the bad folks in this movie descending on the power core hideout and smashing through the windows, jumping through the doors. They are here for the final showdown. Yep. And also uh, Jimmy's there. But, you know, Billy thinks like, oh, hey, Jimmy got free. Hooray. Even though like it should be pretty obvious what's happening right now, given that the same damn thing happened earlier with Satori. Koga has possessed Jimmy, and now the the brothers must fight each other, just like in the video game. And uh, a lot of zany fight things are happening elsewhere as well. Mark Dacascos, of course, is doing all of the heavy lifting, and everybody else is just kind of engaged in zany antics that the people who made this movie hope the 10-year-olds are confusing for fight sequences. Marion ties up Lash at some point. Yeah, Marion ties up Lash, and then Lash gets, like, beamed in the face with somebody's elbow. She gets just, like, cold-clocked by somebody who's trying to hit somebody else, and uh, does, like, a comedy slide down the wall as she's knocked out. Yeah, did we actually get, like, slide whistle there? Because I feel like we should have. If we didn't, I felt the slide whistle in my soul. If there wasn't an actual slide whistle, my brain filled in the gaps for the movie. At one point during uh, Billy and uh, Possessed Jimmy's fight, they are fighting directly in front of a Double Dragon arcade cabinet. At least with the Street Fighter hardware cameo, it was more subtle. We're, We're here like we have the medallion which they have called the double dragon which we we haven't really mentioned this before but like this movie essentially changes what the title even means in the video games the title is referring to the lees themselves they are the dragons 
here, like, the double dragon is the medallion, which is not a thing in the games. They fight against a double dragon arcade machine, and as well as some other arcade machines that have been conveniently graffitied over, so we can't see what they were. Mark Dacascus does some pretty cool flips. Uh, Scott Wolf, I don't know, whines a lot, probably. He tries to throw the medallion away at some point. I think you mentioned that earlier and then the medallion just in what is actually legitimately the the best special effect in the movie it kind of boomerangs back to him the half of the medallion they've been holding on to and not been able to use for the entirety of the movie is the body half and i guess it makes billy invincible now that it's active which is good because uh because he can't fight uh yeah he can't fight and jimmy koga kicks him through a wall he's like you can't hurt me now I've got this medallion. Yeah, I just, I've got the Starman power now. He then says, okay, then I'm just going to kill your brother. Or he's about to have a giant heavy bag, for, uh, you know, like a giant punching bag fall on him. But Billy pushes him out of the way just in time, takes the blow himself. But again, his Starman power hasn't worn off, so he's fine. A punching bag, like, th that would have hurt. It probably would have messed you up, but I don't think that would have killed anybody. Luckily, this seems to, I guess, be enough to kind of shake Koga out of Jimmy's body. So Jimmy's back to normal, but oh no, Billy has now uh, lost the medallion. Uh, it fell out of his hand when he when he got hit. When he purposefully tried to throw it away, it just came back to him. And, and I know this is like nitpicking like CinemaSins crap. Why didn't the, the medallion just fly back to his hand like it did before? I don't know. But anyway, Koga gets his hand on the medallion and it's like, oh, no, he's got both halves. Now he's all powerful. Yeah. And then what he does with this is he turns himself basically into like noob Cybot, I guess, and splits himself in half. He turns himself into two identical shadow ninja guys with katanas. And um, they are conveniently played by uh, actual, like, martial artists, like, stunt actors. So uh, there is the, the the ability for Mark Dacascos to have a fight with one of them that looks kind of a little bit more real than some of the fights in this movie. Yeah, honestly, like, this was kind of a relief almost because I'm like, oh, my God, an actual, like, convincing-looking fight scene against an actual convincing, cool-looking villain, finally. They're not having much luck all the lights have gone out all the light in the city has i guess been sucked out and and has gone into koga so he is and, and the movie has established earlier on that koga is for some reason extremely photosensitive oh right yeah he's, he's very sensitive to light like at one point lash turns on the lights in his studio and he's like hey not before I have my shades on. He does call them shades because he's so cool. While this is all happening, a Bobo is in a cell? The power company? The power core just, like, locked him up? I feel like the idea of them just calling themselves the power company. That's... The power company, yeah, the power company, yeah. Uh, the power core have, have locked him up. He has, like, a, a photo of a pretty girl. He smiles at it. He looks in the mirror and I guess sees how he looks now for the first time. And he's sad and angry and you're supposed to feel something for a Bobo here, but you can't because this movie is horrible at actual characterization. Yeah, and like most of Bobo scenes, this scene just feels like it drags on forever yeah so a bobo is now angry and he busts out of the cell and he comes up to the big central area where everybody's kind of just circled around watching the lees fight for their lives against the super koga brothers he yells for marion to turn the lights on 
So she runs over to a generator. There is a way too long scene of her trying to to rev up this generator. Oh, God, yes. But it does work eventually. The lights all come back on. The Lees kick the two Shadow Kogas back together into regular Koga. He loses the medallion. They get the halves of the medallion back. And then they join the halves of the medallion and magically transform into two guys who are do- doing really bad double dragon cosplay for a convention. They basically look like bedazzled Lin Kuei ninjas from Mortal Kombat. Yes, they do. They do. They suddenly get these really cheap looking karate gi outfits with big shoulder pads and sequins all over them that are in the colors of their characters from the game. Power Rangers managed to do ninja costumes better than this. That was another thing I was thinking of is most, if not all of the fight sequences in this movie were like sub Power Ranger level of action sequence. Not even like, you know, the the Japanese Sentai stuff, but like just the stuff with the actual American actors. It was worse than that. Just in general terms of like production values and everything is, is I would say, sub Power Rangers level. Oh, like a shimmering vision of Satori appears in the sky and tells them that they've unlocked the power of the medallion. Oh, yeah. Yeah. She's like, hey, I recorded this earlier in the medallion somehow. Like, don't don't ask how that works. So random. I guess like, I don't know, that actress was like, I get to have a thing in the final scene of the movie. Like, I don't care that my character's dead. Like, ah, okay. Whatever. None of this matters anyway. They very handily beat the crap out of Koga, which I mean, like this would have been the time where like, okay, you've got powered up dragons. You've got the two ninja wraiths, have them fight each other. And then you've got like maybe a decent scene to cap this off. But no, Jimmy possesses Koga as the police are arriving And he's just like, hey, I'm going to give the police department all of my money. And it's not even a bribe. You can go ahead and arrest me anyway. And and then he uh, depossesses Koga, but the police officers don't realize that any of that happened. So they've now got, you know, like a lot more money and they are going to start fighting back against the gangs who, again, if I may remind you all, are just kind of a bunch of kids who are probably homeless and and also now the power core who again whose main you know figurehead is a lady who gets to go home to a nice comfy bed every night or you know day or whatever is now i guess going to be doing actual violence for the police department so again the whole freedom fighter metaphor kind of falls apart there because freedom fighters are usually fighting against power structures and the establishment not with them. If the power core were actually going to be proper freedom fighters, they'd be maybe trying to reach out to the gangs and, and, you know, find ways to stop the cycle of violence from happening and opposing the actual power structures that are apparently either unwilling or unable to deal with whatever calamity it is that sort of led us to this point in the movie's universe. And like the 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 horrible sort of right-wing ideology that you do see in this movie is the idea that as far as this movie is concerned, the true power structure that needs to be fought against is the gangs like they're organized they're strong and they've got corporate backing and the media cares about what they how they feel you know they've got all the cards stacked against the good people and the police that's the whole thing here yeah yeah like that's what they want us to think that like the the gang basically are 
the establishment that they have that kind of power. And I just, I, I'm not buying it. Yeah. So, uh, you know, happy ending for everybody. Uh, Koga's getting carted off to jail. The police are going to take back the streets in the night. The power core even fixed up the, uh, the boys station wagon, which for, I think the only time in the movie is called the dragon wagon in this scene. I, I didn't even catch that part. Yeah. Cause when they go out and see it, Billy's like, Hey, the dragon wagon. Then a Bobo comes up to them and he's like, can I be friends with you guys? I'm so tired of fighting. And for whatever reason, Jimmy thinks that Billy is using the medallion power to possess a Bobo. He's like, yeah, sure, a Bobo. We can be friends. You want to drive the car? And then they get into the car and turns out Billy's already in there. And they're like, oh, no. Ah, as a Bobo speeds off in the car with them. They've given a Bobo this weird sort of redemption arc. You know what works better for that is if a Bobo is the analog for the gangs as a whole. And, hey, we're tired of fighting. We don't want to live like this. And then the power core and the gangs coming to some sort of truce and saying, hey, look, police, you got to do something to help us all or we're just done with you because what the hell good are you for? Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, what you're talking about would have required them to put literally any thought at all into any of this, which they don't do. But again, like, I don't think that this is malicious in a way that I would expect from, like, actual right-wing propaganda. I think that it's just a result of how lazy everything about this movie is, which yeah. isn't an excuse per se, because, I mean, laziness and carelessness aren't things that we should aspire to. You know, we should learn from the times that we are being careless instead of, uh, you know, like using that as a, an excuse for bad behavior. I mean, they, they can still result in, in bad, ugly things happening. I agree with you. I don't think that there was really any thought put into the messaging here. But the idea that in 1994, with everything that was going on in the 90s in L.A., that somebody would make a movie that even as like a side thing, incidentally, would be like, oh, yeah, definitely the problem in L.A. is that the police here are not being hard enough on crime. It's wild. Like, it's such a an extreme piece of bad optics that like, I can't see how you how you make these choices and not be like, hey, wait a second. If this movie weren't a complete mess and honestly boring in its best parts, the awful politics, you know, accidental though they may be, just suck out any possible enjoyment I could have had for this. Street Fighter had some of that, too, but... It was just an infinitely more enjoyable movie with characters that were a lot more fun to follow. I just can't get over how much I kind of unironically enjoyed Street Fighter when we did that for this, for, for these uh, quick change of the channels, and how much I just hated watching this movie. Folks, we, we do hope that, that you have enjoyed listening to us talk about this movie, but I really cannot emphasize enough how much I do not recommend actually watching this. Like, you can do it for free on YouTube. It's like 96 minutes long, and it feels like it's at least twice that, because it's so boring and so shoddily put together. I had way more fun just talking about this and ripping it apart with you than I did any moment I was I spent watching this. But yeah, it is free on YouTube. I wouldn't recommend it. Uh, and please, for the love of God, don't watch it on Tubi. Don't give them the maybe clicks just, or, or the ad revenue. Maybe just don't use that service, like, at all. Yeah. 
don't use that service. Like, that doesn't sound good in the least from what you've said about it. I think we've covered everything. I think I got as political as I needed to get. I can't think of any other just little thing about this movie that stood out to me that I wanted to to mention or talk about or dig into. I I feel like we've we've... Uh, frankly explored this movie far more than it ever deserved i mean we've now talked about it for for half an hour more than the movie lasts yep and i am looking forward to uh never having to talk or hopefully think about this movie ever again and hopefully the next one we do when we do another one of these will be something more fun what what do you think uh would be more fun to talk about next time we do one of these well i mean we could go with another one of the classics we could do the super mario brothers movie uh or something that's at least legitimately a little bit good uh the mortal Kombat movie is the mortal Kombat movie legitimate you know what let's do mortal Kombat next time let's you know what it's it i'm gonna say it's not good no it is not good but compared to this thing it looks like a masterpiece i have a theory that mortal Kombat is is far worse than anybody gives it credit for actually and that yeah like anything good you can say about it is in comparison to dreck like this but i'm i'm gonna say I bet we don't enjoy it as much as Street Fighter. And, and I could be completely wrong. Would love to be completely wrong because I, I don't like watching things that I don't like watching like this. But, you know, I, I have a feeling you might be right. Uh, I, I Folks, I love Street Fighter. I really was shocked at how much I loved the Street Fighter movie when we watched it. I mean, it is so silly, but it's silly in all the right ways. It knows what it is, and it and it revels in it, and I kind of appreciate that. Yeah, it's a camp classic. Yeah, next time, though, we will do Mortal Kombat, and we'll see how these two titans of 90s fighting game movie adaptations compare. Uh, if you're listening to this as we put it out, we hope you're having a good Thanksgiving holiday if you're here in the state. Please stay safe out there. Please, you know, do do Thanksgiving over Zoom or whatever you, you need to do. Um, Don't have any large gatherings. Uh, please stay safe. The virus is real. Take it seriously. Hopefully we'll all be in a better place for a more a more normal holiday weekend next year. Yeah. And that might be when we do the next one. I don't know. I don't, I don't know if we have any other time that we are planning on doing another one of these. So it, it may be another year before we actually get to mortal Kombat, but uh, we'll get there when we get there. In any case, uh, we're going to go back to normal next time. We're going to be wrapping up February of 1993 for Sinescapades. And uh, we hope to see you then, but uh, Hey everybody, thank you all so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this more than I enjoyed watching double dragon until next time. I'm steampunk link. I'm Emmy Zero. Game over!